You are listening to Kilometer Zero by the Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Earlier in this Giro, we quoted the great Dino Buzzati in agreeing that the central regions are where Italy feels most like Italy. As Buzzati said, an extraordinarily human land, in which to our delight the Corsa Rosa has lingered and indulged our spirit of Girovagando this year, with its spinal cord of emerald peaks and vine-cloaked hillsides, ravishing Renaissance cities with their porticoed piazzas and naturally their food and wine. But a recurring theme in our travelogues has also been this young nation's diversity, and by that gauge Friuli may truly contain the essence of Italy. Two weeks into a Giro in which its most successful cycling son, Alessandro De Marchi, wore the Maglia Rosa for two days before crashing out on stage 12, this weekend the race will spend two and a half days in this Italy's northeasternmost outpost. And as it passes through, may either partly decode or alternatively add to the mystique of this most un-Italian, yet for that reason, perhaps quintessentially Italian corner of Il Bel Paese. For the birthplace of the great novelist Italo Svevo and delicacies like San Daniele ham and Collio white wine, and the scene of tragedies such as World War battles, the collapse of the Vaillant Dam killing 2,000 people in 1963, and one of Italy's most devastating earthquakes in 1976, continues to be misunderstood and in some cases mistrusted, although respected by many outside its perimeters. As Maurizio Cescon of the most important Friulano newspaper, Il Messaggero Veneto, explains. Allora, il Friuli, del resto d'Italia, è visto come una regione. The rest of Italy sees Friuli as a region of tenacious people, of workers who managed to rebuild towns, villages and lives after the 1976 earthquake, in a way that nowhere else had been able to do before and hasn't since. It's a source of pride for us and something the rest of Italy recognises. That said, it's also a mysterious region for a lot of Italians. They don't know it, partly because we're a borderland. Once upon a time, a lot of young people came here to do their military service because there are a lot of army barracks in Friuli. But now the compulsory military service has been abolished, they don't come. So we've got a generation of people who know a lot less about Friuli than their parents. Others have also been by turns bedazzled or bemused. One of the greatest Italian travel writers of the 20th century, Guido Piovene, wrote of the Friulani's fantasy that their land, with the mountains of Carnia, the hills above Udine, the plains and the lagoons along the coast, the different races and the vibrant colours of a time older than ours, is itself its own universe, in all of its variety. That variety included its rich tradition of folk music, 
which, to the American ethnomusicologist Alan Lomax, was the best if not only keyhole into the soul of the Friulani when he spent years studying it in the mid-20th century. As Lomax concluded, it's a gentle and fertile land, blessed with precious food and wine, where it's easy to fall in love and the people while away hours in the cafes, singing kind and enigmatic songs with a quaintness and structure that appears almost Austrian in style, yet also Slavic, with voices coalescing in long and sweet melodies, crying drunk tears of wine and pleasure. All of which may have made another student of the Friulani, and the Friulano himself, the author Carlos Gorlon, smile. The Friulano people are a people almost unknown to the Italians, Corlon wrote once, a people about whom little is said and only ever as a result of some major calamity. World wars, the deadly violent landslide, the earthquakes of May and September 1976, a people who are mellow and proud, industrious and parsimonious, constructive and silent, who don't draw attention. But over three days this weekend, and particularly on stage 15, finishing in Gorizia, millions of eyes will be on Friuli. The author of numerous books about modern Italian history, and one about Italian cycling, Pedalare Pedalare, Professor John Foote of the University of Bristol has often said that one of the essential functions of the Giro is to explain Italy to the Italians. That role may never be more important than when the Corsa Rosa comes to Friuli, and so we let John guide us through some of the key events that have shaped the region's history, and particularly Gorizia's, where stage 15 concludes on Sunday. So John, Gorizia, we're fortunate enough to be here um, this year in the Giro. And when we think about this part of the world, we think about Friuli and the Giro. We often think about 1946 and Trieste and the stage that was sort of curtailed, stopped. And, you know, that's obviously well known as a kind of contested territory, uh, Trieste, among other things. But Gorizia has an even more colourful history or equally colourful history, doesn't it? And... And in Gorizia's case, it's maybe the most interesting period, the real flashpoints, they predate, well, certainly the Second World War, and even, um, well, you go back to the First World War, but even before that, um, I was reading about it earlier, and, you know, even in the 19th century, there were times when sort of there were five or six languages commonly spoken in Gorizia due to the various different influences there. Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing place with a... Now it's very sleepy and it's quite a small town but and off the beaten track. But for 100 years or so, it was really a flashpoint. Borderland, you know, between 
Italian speaking, um, what became Yugoslavia, Slovenia. Um, so real, a place of a kind of con a contested place between various countries. And that is, you know, led to enormous conflict. And to the town basically being flattened more than once during during war. So it's this place with this kind of deep traumatic um, history, which you can kind of feels a bit weird when you walk around it today, because it feels such a kind of gentrified and well-to-do and, and quite boring place, which is really odd. But it actually wasn't that at all for so long. Um, and it was really a place that many countries wanted, a very strategic place on right on the border um, for, for, for decades. In the barest possible terms, before World War One, was it Italy? Was it not Italy? Was it Austria? What was it? It was in the Austria-Hungarian Empire, um, and it, but it was somewhere that Italy wanted. Um, you know, it was it was when Italy was formed in the nineteenth century. There were lots um, lots of people who said we we formed this country with these borders, but actually Italy is much bigger than this, and there you know until we haven't completed this unification until we've got these other lands. The unredeemed land, they were called. Based I mean, on kind of language, based on what yeah. people saw as culture. Sometimes it was a stretch, you know, places like Nice, you know, Corsica sometimes people claimed. Large parts of the Mediterranean were sometimes claimed. Mussolini obviously claimed parts of Greece as Italian. Um, but kind of the bare minimum was places like Trieste and Gorizia up in the northeast. Um, and, you know, the kind of places just outside the borders which people said were Italian and were willing to go to war for, you know, and that when you have the First World War breaks out in 1915, Italy um, wants those lands. That's its kind of, its main aims of this bloody long conflict, which goes on for far, far longer than most people thought. And Gorizia is kind of, Gorizia is kind of, if you don't get Gorizia, there's really no point going to war because it's like, it's the it's the first place to and is it the claim, last place with those Italian influences or even today if you go beyond Gorizia to the you know the the villages the first sort of line of Slovenia there are there still Italian influences or was that place that where you could reasonably legitimately claim that there was an or an Italian kind of soul whether it was linguistic or you know historical yeah it's kind of that I mean of course the Italian influence goes way beyond in terms of going way back to when Italy was a colonial power, even the Venetian Empire. But, you know, there's a line you can draw there. And it's an amazing place to go to for that because there's a border which isn't a border and you can just walk across it. Um, and it's kind of written on the ground. But for years, that was the Cold War border um, with fences and and watchtowers and, you know, like Berlin. Gorizia was Italy's Berlin. It was divided up and they put, you know, the border right through graveyards and stuff like that. But yeah, the next place over is, is Slovenia and people speak a different language. A lot of them will also speak Italian. But yeah, there's a quite a clear cultural linguistic difference, um, which is was kind of exacerbated by it being this borderland as well um, for such a long time. I am Matteo Fabro and I write for Team Bora Ansgrohe. Well, Matteo, I wanted to ask you really about the stages in Friuli at the weekend. You're from Friuli. Give us a really basic explainer of where is Friuli and what are the people from Friuli like? Just for someone who's never heard of it. Uh, Friuli is in the northeast of Italy. It's a special land with mountains, with sea, with everything. We have also the Kaiser, the Zonkalan. And yeah, we will uh, have some show there for sure. Uh, maybe we will be not uh, really lucky with the weather because it's uh, going to be rain. 
but never know, we will see. Do you speak Friulano? Yes. Um, would I, so I speak Italian, would I, would an Italian understand it? Uh, probably not, if I speak uh, real Friulano, probably you don't understand. <laughs> and so young people speak it amongst themselves as well, it's not just older people? Yeah, everybody. Everybody. And uh, Matteo, tell me about the, the last few years, there have been more um, Friulano riders, we've seen Alessandro in the pink jersey, it just seems to be gathering momentum, what's happened? It just seems to be getting more and more momentum cycling in Friuli and professional cycling. What, what's happening there? I think it's just a historical moment. And yeah, this year was uh, for, uh, for riders, uh, some officers, some directors, was like almost 10 people from Friuli. And it was uh, amazing. And luckily yesterday we lost uh, Alessandro, but he got the pink jersey, so he bring... Uh, really in high level Friuli and we are really happy about that and last thing what are, what are the people of Friuli like how would you describe them the rest other Italians say they're closed you know they're not very open what would you say uh, the, the typical Friulano Friulano guy you mean uh, the typical Friulano it's uh, maybe a not really open guy but uh, yeah also not really closed it's uh, in the average you can see Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insight, and personalized analytics. We are here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Kilometer Zero by The Cycling Podcast. Powered by Super Sapiens. Kilometre Zero is supported by Super Sapiens and as part of that sponsorship we've been hearing from the Novo Nordisk riders. Sam Brand is from the Isle of Man and he was competing as a triathlete when he was offered the opportunity to concentrate on cycling by Novo Nordisk a few years ago. We asked him about the 2021 team Novo Nordisk jersey. Unlike most teams who bear the name of the sponsoring company on their chest, the most striking message on the jersey is the team's raison d'etre. Navy blue um, with gold and yellow stripe now, you know, because this year is the 100th year of the discovery of insulin, uh, the drug that keeps us alive. So that is a game changer. You know, 100 years ago, without insulin, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't survive. So to realize that this year is the 100th year, uh, on the back of the jersey, we have the big 100 to celebrate the 100th year. And on the front, it's emblazoned with changing diabetes. Uh, and that is so helpful, you know, not that I need to be reminded when I get on the bike, but when I get on the bike and I see that every day and I realize that that is why I'm doing it and to be reminded of that, I don't need to be reminded, but to be reminded of that and show people that and realize that and it gets more understanding and people realize and I think they, they sort of, they understand now, you know, more and more those people who don't have diabetes, we can affect change in them, but also with this spectacular jersey, you know, it's beautiful and to be able to, to wear that is, is incredible. So, so you said, um, in one sense, it was it was almost a, a raison d'être of the, the the kind of war um, efforts and ambitions um, in the First World War, and um, well, it was successful from an Italian point of view. But then thereafter, it, it became a hotbed of Italian nationalism, didn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, once in, in the First World War, they sort of take it, then they lose it, then they take it, then they lose it. It's basically reduced to rubble. Um, and, you know, a lot of people die for Gorizia. There's a famous Italian song, O Gorizia, tu sei maledetto. You know, oh God, not Gorizia again, a kind of anti-war song about how many lives Gorizia has cost. And then once Italy takes it in the First World War, it becomes Italian, then it, yes, it's it's very much on the the place where, you know, fascism and nationalism, it's one of the first places where it takes root and becomes very violent, Trieste and Gorizia, and racist um, against so-called Slavs. And that kind of maintains itself right through the regime. Um, it's one of the places where fascism executes people. It doesn't execute a lot of people, but it has, like, executes Slovenian rebels, and there's a kind of underground war against the Italian regime from Gorizia and across the border. And once the Second World War kicks in, it becomes contested territory again, and you've got the resistance, you've got some um, different groups forming, and, and then the Cold War is very, very hot there. It's one of the hottest places in Europe in the Cold War because you've got communism just across the border. Um, and that threat of communism is felt very strongly by Italia. So it remains this kind of violent, lots of spies, lots of intrigue, lots of, um, you know, cross-border conspiracies and tunnels and things like that, you know, um, but kind of out of the mainstream of that kind of literature. We all know about the Berlin Wall, but not many people know about the Gritzia Wall. Um, and how that continued. Um, and, you know, when Gorizia was liberated from fascism by Tito, um, the Yugoslav uh, communist leader, and they killed a lot of people when they took over Gorizia. And that's still a controversial thing today. There was a, a form of, well, ethnic, I don't know whether it's ethnic cleansing or, yeah, I guess it was. There was some extent ethnic cleansing, some extent a kind of... Um, anti-fascists, a lot of fascists were picked out and killed. Uh, also the intelligentsia of Gorizia, sort of teachers and bureaucrats were taken out and shot. And that's kind of what happens when you take over a town in that context. But that's still something that's very controversial mm -hmm. today, still very hot subject of memory. And, and just we'll come back today. to the, the wall and the division in a minute, but just going back a bit again to that period after the, the First World War when it became this um, sort of incubator for Italian nationalism, um, I think, you know, even families' names were changed by kind of force, uh, Italianized. So if, if in Gorizia now, do you think typically you would find people, you know, with Italian names, but if you went back through their family tree, you would see that, um, you know, they were, they were Slavs in it? up until that period yeah i mean people were forced to italianize their names um also in the schools um which where people spoke slovenian they were forced to speak italian um and many of them didn't know italian because they they only spoke slovenian or a local dialect and that was a sort of um, form of the the, re the repression of mm. certain cultures that fascism put in place in um, Gorizia, but also up on the so-called Caso, which is this incredible plateau of limestone where a lot of the First World War was fought and which um, is very populated by these small Slovenian villages where actually it's famous also for going to have mm. incredible wine and food up there, yeah. um, which is an amazing landscape as well. But yeah, they and there's been quite a lot of recent work about how brutal that was to children and um, how they sent out the most kind of zealous fascists to teach in these schools and kind of repress 
the Slovenian language, which didn't work because it it kind of almost exacerbated Slovenian nationalism mm. by repressing it. So it left a long legacy of bitterness um, in that area. I am uh, Nicola Vincherutti, I'm a rider for Androni Giocattoli. I live in Osoppo, near Monte Zoncolan in Friuli, and uh, I'm happy for uh, the, this Giro 2021 arrives in Zoncolan. The Zoncolan has become a mythical climb in cycling. It used to be well known in these parts for skiing, but now it's become world famous and it's brought people from all over the world to that part of Friuli, which we call Carnia. To be honest though, I don't ride it very often. You'd have to be a nutcase. I know it pretty well though, including from Priola, the side the Giro has never done, which may also be the hardest side. But the Zoncolan is a mountain that's very precious to anyone who comes from Carnia, even putting cycling to one side. There are fantastic walking trails up there, the skiing's great, there are some great malge or mountain huts. Zoncolan was a name that I heard throughout my childhood, and I also always went up there to see the Giro finishes. Now I've moved to Osopo, near Udine, but of course I still feel close to Carnia and the people there. They're extremely passionate about cycling and sport in general. As for Tolmeso, well, yes, we're proud of this claim that tiramisu was invented there. I know there's a restaurant in Treviso that says it was them, but I'm obviously backing Tolmeso in that rivalry, if you want to call it that. So after the Second World War, you know, this comparison is often made, and you mentioned it, uh, sort of miniature Berlin um, and the Watchtowers. And how, how hard was that border? And what, what was it like, do you think, you know, if you were a citizen of Gorizia in that time? And, and also, where is the border? Because, um, you know, is it, does it cut right down the middle or is it sort of, you know, in the middle of a field on the, out, on the outside of town? So the Allies were in charge after the war, uh, the British and the, there was other troops there, New Zealand, Australia. There's an amazing book by Jan Morris about Trieste where she, she was actually a soldier um, in Trieste, uh, which was her first encounter, the famous travel writer who's very recently died. It's a book called Trieste or the Meaning of Nowhere, which is around that area. But yeah, the Allies were in charge and they, they to sort out the situation like they did in Berlin, they, they drew this kind of slightly arbitrary border, um, as I said, famously right through graveyards and, and across. And, and it's, you know, it was drawn in a very weird way, but you can see the lines. So there's this incredible station, which is an Austria-Hungarian station, which was Gorizia's main railway station, which took you into Yugoslavia. And that is just over the other side in the Slovenian border. So you could see that, but you couldn't go to it. You couldn't get a train uh, from there. But if you lived in Gorizia, you'd have to go to a completely different train station. Um, so it was kind of very a very strange place. It was a very hard border. I mean, if you if you... You could get back. There were people who were smuggled back and forth, but they, um, you know, would have to be arrested and taken back over the border. There were lots of negotiations. You can see the architecture of it as you go around. You can see the, the watchtowers and the points and, and so on. It's actually more intact in some ways than Berlin because Berlin's been so changed, which you know very well. But, you know, sometimes in Berlin, you can't tell where the wall was now, but you mm. you can kind of trace it in, um, in Gorizia. So, yeah, it was a big symbol of the Cold War. And... Um, and and ran right through the town and kind of marked the town out. Um, so you have new, new, new Gorizia built by the Yugoslav regime, which is a kind of challenge mm. to old Gorizia. And they're kind of two towns 
very close to each other, which don't have any contact. They do today. They have lots of contact today, but they didn't for. I was about period. to say, so when the, the the Iron Curtain sort of falls and um, you know Yugoslavia starts to collapse, it's kind of it's Slovenia that really sort of moves the first kind of Jenga block, um, and, and that's how it starts to all happen in that part of the world. But so, how was that experienced in Gorizia? What did that practically mean? Um, and over what sort of period was it was it still um, sort of unstable? So when the Yugoslav civil war breaks out, yeah, as you say, Slovenia is one of the first places to move. And there's actually some fighting right on the border with um, Gorizia, not for very many days. But then Slovenia very quickly um, comes out of that and is recognised um, by Germany and other countries quite early on. So the real terrible fighting is further deeper into Yugoslavia and Bosnia. But, you know, there's there's a lot of um, um, migration across. There's a lot of... Um, fear within Gorizia that they're going to be taken over by ex-communists or communists but actually in the long run it's a very peaceful transition there and the border comes down um, when when Slovenia joins the European Union so it's been a very successful model actually of um, integration and um, peaceful transition and the end of a border and it's interesting you know where borders are going up for example with Brexit that's a border that's come down where there's basically free movement back and forth uh, and nobody even notices the border really anymore, um, which is extraordinary if you think about the history of that border over such a long time. Um, and as I said, I mean, I think it's really freaky when you go there and you can see this just like line on the ground mm. and you can just walk over it. Um, it's amazing um, kind of history, the way history changes in that town. I'm Davide Cimolai, Israel Startup Nation, and I'm from Friuli, Venezia, Giulia. David, in a couple of days we arrive in Friuli. Um, how much have you been looking forward to this? How much of a motivation for your Giro has it been? Yeah, uh, I wait this uh, the stage on my region from from the beginning. So uh, I would like to win today. Sure, I try, but uh, my dream is uh, the the stage of uh, Sunday in Grado Gorizia because it's my region is adapt of my characteristics. So and also because I'm. I'm fighting for the Ciclamino jersey. In what way are Friulani different from other Italians? <laughs> Do you feel a bit a bit Slavic? Do you feel the influences that there are in your region? Yeah, for me it's a, a dream because three, three, three stages in my region is something special. Also for my parents, for my fans. Uh, it's nice to, uh, to ride on my uh, road training. No? Another... I guess important moment in the history of Gorizia. I think he's in the well. I suppose you could locate it in the sixties, and um, the protagonist, the sort of central figure, is someone called Franco Basaglia. Um, and you have done a lot of research on him. Who was he? Franco Basaglia was a a young psychiatrist working in Padua, which is in the Veneto, and he couldn't get a job. He was he trained as a psychiatrist, and this job came up in Gorizia in nineteen sixty one to be director of the psychiatric hospital there. Gorizia had its own psychiatric hospital, uh, quite a big one, which had been built by the Austrians originally, uh, on the edge of town, as these things tended to be. Actually, right on the border from the psychiatric hospital, you could see the watchtowers. And when people escaped from the psychiatric hospital, they sometimes did, they'd often escape into Yugoslavia and had to be brought back to the checkpoint. 
Um, so Bazzaglia became director and he, he very quickly, he didn't like what he saw in the psychiatric hospital and he decided to kind of open it up and change it and humanise it. He saw it as a place of torture where people were tied up and not treated properly and treated as animals and had their heads shaved and so on. And so he did this extraordinary thing when he was there for seven, eight years. Um, he made it into one of the first open um, therapeutic communities in the world. And from a backwater where no one cared about Gorizia at that point, and they certainly didn't care about the psychiatric hospital, it became a very famous psychiatric hospital. People came from all over the world to go and visit it um, because it, it didn't feel, it felt like somewhere completely different. They go in, all the doors are being knocked down, all the gates are being knocked down, people were wandering around. They said they couldn't tell who were the mad people and who the sane people were. And he inspired this whole experiment, which actually took off across Italy in the 60s and 70s. And Italy was the first country in the world, and that's what makes it so revolutionary, the first country in the world to close down its psychiatric hospital system for reasons of um, medical and humane reasons, not for cost reasons. Um, and that all started in Gorizia, and I've studied that quite a lot. And you could walk down there, it's called the Basalia Park now, and you see this closed-down asylum, some of which is still used for mental health, and this lovely park where the patients weren't allowed to go until until Basalia took over. And it's kind of a it's a very interesting place to go. There, there's a bit of a debate in town about whether to make it a museum or and so on. So, you know, something amazing started there, which is a very unlikely place for it to start because, you know, as I said, nobody really cared about Gorizia in the 60s. Um, and from there, he went eventually to Trieste, Basalia, and there it really became famous as a crazy, like almost hippie community psychiatric hospital it sounds very weird to even say that and trieste was the symbol of of this um radical overturning of the of the institution you know sometimes there's a dark side to this i don't want to make it into a, a overwhelmingly positive there was a in 1968 there was a murder in Gorizia of a a woman who was the husband of a man who was in the psychiatric hospital who was released on day released and he murdered his wife and that caused that was national news and Basalia took responsibility for that said you know we're taking risks um we admit it and um he actually that was the beginning of the end for him in uh, in Gorizia he he didn't want to be there anymore after that so you know there's a there's a it's a it was a huge thing in the town and it was a lot of people looked on what was happening with great suspicion Can you give me one sentence in Friulano and translate for me? <laughs> uh, it's difficult uh, because Friulano is not a dialect, it's a, very, it's a language. And also for me, I'm Friulano, but I don't speak very, very well. I don't speak my, my language because I, I, live, I live close to another, uh, another region. One sentence in Friulano? Uh, <laughs> le pighe. I think I understand a bit of a, a bit of, OK. You have been listening to an episode of Kilometre Zero by The Cycling Podcast, supported by Super Sapiens. It was presented by me, Daniel Freiber, and produced by Adam Bowie. 